My name is Paul Riley, also known as Political Paul, and this is The Riley Rant, a weekly podcast where we discuss all things political, professional, and personal. Let's rant. Thank you for tuning in to the 15th official episode of The Riley Rant. As was noted in the intro, we discuss all things political, professional, and personal. And if you've been following us, you know that last week I did a personal rant on loneliness, social media, and destigmatizing mental health. Two weeks ago, I had a special guest, Caroline Kitchener, come on the show, and we discussed her book, Postgrad, Five Women in Their First Year Out of College. Realizing that last week I did a personal rant and two weeks ago I did a rant centered on the personal and the professional, I thought this week I have to get to the political. And when you think about all that's been happening in the political sphere, this past weekend was significant because it marked the 100th day of the Trump presidency, of the Trump administration. And the 100th day is significant and has been significant for quite some time because it allows pundits and the public and news outlets to begin to assess and to evaluate the effectiveness of the president in the first couple of weeks and months in office, and it sets the foundation for what is likely to happen in the following weeks and months and years, and and even the first term more broadly. So given that Trump recently passed the 100-day milestone this past Saturday, yesterday, I wanted to spend this time focusing on the political, giving you more of an understanding of how this 100-day standard came about, assessing what Trump has accomplished and not accomplished in these 100 days, look forward to see what he's seeking to do in his remaining 1,360 days of his first term, and then beyond that, I want to leave you with uh, my thoughts on how we should grapple with the Trump presidency and the next four years of this administration. So when thinking about the 100-day standard, Tamara Keith of NPR and Michael Watkins of The Hill, they both write pieces that really help contextualize this 100-day standard that we hold many presidents to. And again, that's evaluating how well they, they do in the first 100 days in office. And so the term was actually coined by Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1933 in an address that he gave. And during that time, FDR was dealing with some significant issues, the banking crisis, the Great Depression. And so he basically was coming from the perspective of analyzing uh, his first 100 days and looking at the legislation and things that were passed and assessing and evaluating that. And that's been the standard since 1933. For new administrations and new terms, presidents are now evaluated on this 100-day time frame. So to give you a sense of how other presidents have done in their first 100 days, as I mentioned before, President Roosevelt dealt with the banking crisis and the Great Depression, worked with Congress to get some significant legislation passed to help deal with that issue. Uh, President Kennedy, in his first 100 days, authorized the Bay of Pigs invasion in Cuba, which uh, failed miserably. And so a failure in a president's first 100 days is not unlikely and is actually quite frequent. President Reagan was actually shot. There was an assassination attempt in his first 100 days. President Clinton had to withdraw nominations 
to certain posts, and he also had an economic stimulus plan that failed in his first 100 days. President Obama, we all may remember this as it was fairly recent, he passed a stimulus package in 2009 in his first 100 days at the onset of the financial crisis and grappling with that. And so the biggest takeaway is that throughout a president's first 100 days in office, there are some accomplishments, but there oftentimes are some failures. And so we see with FDR and Obama, when there's chaos in, in both their cases, a financial crisis, you see a lot of activity, a lot of action, a lot of momentum to get legislation passed through the House and the Senate and signed into law as you're responding to significant events, to chaos. But we also see how presidents may fail in trying to get certain policies past the finish line. Sometimes they fail. Sometimes they don't even they don't even materialize. And so that's just a high-level overview of how presidents fare in the first 100 days. And many presidents have tried to buck this 100-day standard. Trump and others have claimed that it's arbitrary, that when you're president, it takes more time to accomplish some of these significant uh, policy agenda items. And so they think it's sort of arbitrary and annoying. But with that being said, they still understand the importance of the 100-day standard. And so even though Trump is now critiquing this 100-day standard as arbitrary, it was actually Trump himself who was on the campaign trail talking about his priorities in the first 100 days to make America great again. And so he even was responding to this very real milestone of, of, of 100 days and assessing the start that you have. Additionally, when the 100 day did come around, his team placed out uh, memos and publicity on his accomplishments and even hosted a rally in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania to celebrate his 100 day. So even when presidents critique this 100 day standard, they're still very, very aware of the implications of the first 100 days, and they often try to control the narrative to, of course, make their achievements look good and to diminish any failures or weaknesses that may have come about in those first 100 days. And so when we look at Trump, and in particular, and assess his first 100 days, I don't think I'm alone in saying that many pundits, public policy, analysts, government officials, and even folks within his own administration uh, will admit that it wasn't as successful as he would have liked. We all remember when he first started out, he signed an executive order with the travel ban. It failed in the courts. He tried to revise it, was sued, and it failed again on in the second attempt. But now it's sort of dead, this travel ban. We see a failure you know, early on with that and the confusion around why that was the first action that he took. Additionally, we see the healthcare debacle just over a month ago uh, where he, along with Paul Ryan, are working to push through health care reform, the repealing and the replacing of Obamacare, and in the process of negotiating, it's actually very difficult for Trump and his team and Paul Ryan to get the House Freedom Caucus on board. And it also, when they do try to negotiate and acquiesce to the desires of the House Freedom Caucus, which is the most conservative wing of the Republican Party, that in doing that, they alienated the moderate members of the Republican Party who began to run away from the bill. And so you had a predicament where the bill actually had to be pulled from the House floor. This health care bill, this American Health Care Act, it had to be pulled from the House floor because they didn't have enough votes or support to get it through the House. So that was considered sort of another failure. When you think about a success, uh, many people will say that the Supreme Court nomination of Neil Gorsuch and the confirmation of Gorsuch to the Supreme Court was an early success for the Trump administration. And I do talk about this in a previous episode around getting cloture about how the Senate had to change the rules 
go against many years of precedent to get Neil Gorsuch confirmed. So definitely check out that episode if you haven't done so, entitled Getting Closure. Uh, but more broadly, despite the means, which some are questioning as problematic for the longevity of the Senate and how it functions, there's no denying the fact that that was an early win to get Gorsuch confirmed to the Supreme Court. But when you look at presidential appointments, the administration is still far behind in filling many of those vacancies, even after the first 100 days. You see the president also flip-flopping on campaign promises. So during the campaign, he said he would tear up NAFTA, uh, the North America Free Trade Agreement that we have with Mexico and Canada. But just this past weekend, he said that he has changed his mind. He talked to Mexico and Canada, and he's going to stick with it. So again, a flop on the campaign promise. And then you have him saying throughout the campaign trail that he's going to call China a currency manipulator. They've been hurting um, Americans by manipulating their currency, and he's going to take a stand against them. And then this past weekend, he actually says that I'm not going to call China a currency manipulator because they are actually helping us with the North Korea problem that, that we're currently dealing with and their testing of nuclear weapons. And so some may argue he's changing and evolving and adapting on the job, but it's clear that these are promises that were not kept for whatever reason. So potentially something that goes against what he thought would be a successful first 100 days in that he wasn't able to accomplish those promises. And then he also notes in an interview that he didn't think that being president would be this hard. In some, I think that many would argue that the first 100 days wasn't as successful as it could have been or as he would have liked. And so you see an administration, even with the rally in Harrisburg, trying to spin uh, the achievements or trying to push them out to say, 100 days is so short of a time. We've laid the foundation with world leaders. We've laid the foundation with policies that will be successful going forward. And it's also worth noting that despite you know the ups and downs and the success and failures of the first 100 days, polling is showing that his base is still behind him. They still support him. They're still in his camp. So all of that must be kept into perspective as you think about the successes and failures of the first 100 days. And so with the clear understanding of what he's done so far, I think it's important to also equip my listeners with an understanding of what he hopes to accomplish in the next 1,360 days. And so in interviews, I've been able to sort of tease out what I think will be on the horizon in the coming weeks and months. And the first thing is, again, the administration ratcheting up the rhetoric around revisiting Obamacare and really coming to terms with a new plan that will bring Republicans together and that will really allow for the repealing and the replacing of Obamacare. But, you know, there's still some confusion. Trump is saying that he wanted a bill to come out maybe last week or this week. Mike Pence is saying ideally by the end of the year. And then you have Paul Ryan, who reports show, is privately saying that he will not bring this bill to the floor until he is guaranteed to have the, the amount of votes needed to pass it. And so definitely something to look out for in the coming days and weeks and months. What happens with Obamacare? Is it repealed and replaced? Can the different factions within the Republican Party come together? But then beyond that, the administration recently announced a tax plan. And the two biggest takeaways from the tax plan is that uh, the administration wants to lower corporate tax rates, so taxes on corporations, from 35% to 15%. Another big thing they want to do is lower taxes for Americans and for the wealthiest Americans. And so the wealthiest Americans could pay at most 39.6% in taxes. And so Trump wants to bring that down to 35%. And so with corporate tax rates, again, going from 35% to 15%, for taxes on the wealthiest Americans, going from 39.6% to 35%. And so this is stirring up a lot of frustration within the Democratic Party. 
They're arguing, particularly Representative Terry Sewell. She actually wrote an op-ed today, this morning in the Huffington Post, and she's basically talking about the damage that this tax plan will do to her constituents in Alabama. And she notes that, you know, what Trump is trying to do in lowering these corporate tax rates and the taxes on the wealthy is he's basically reducing the amount of revenue that goes into the federal government, which they then can use to fund essential programs. And so Terry Sewell decides to study from the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget, who estimates that these tax cuts will cut federal revenue by three to seven trillion dollars over the next 10 years. And so Terry Sewell, representative from Alabama, saying, if you're going to cut taxes on corporations and the wealthiest Americans, that's going to cut the amount of revenue going into the federal government, which leaves little funding for essential programs. That's going to ultimately hurt my constituents. And when you talk about how the cuts are going to play out, they're going to impact programs like Meals on Wheels, which helps to feed the hungry and the elderly and the oft-forgotten and oft-ignored. Or when you talk about cutting revenue, the tax plan would also eliminate those community development block grants that would go to ensuring that the crumbling infrastructure in our cities and states across the country, uh, that they're able to be sort of restored or reconstructed with those much needed and much valued federal funds. But that's not going to be the case with the tax plan that's been rolled out by the Trump administration. It's actually going to cut revenue to the federal government and leave those essential programs with little to no funding to meet the needs of the people who need it most. And so that's a Democratic perspective. On the other hand, Republicans are saying Washington has a spending problem, and we can't continue to allow the, the government to excessively spend on these crazy programs, whatever they may be, and continue to squeeze every penny, nickel, and dime out of the American people. And so we have to stop this spending problem by lowering taxes, providing relief to working class families to ensure that they have more money in their pockets and to ensure that the government can start curtailing its excessive spending. And so those are the, the, the different sides of the argument. And of course, it's more complicated than, than this, but just wanted to provide you a high level on, on the debate. And from my perspective, when I look at this, you know, there's no denying the fact that the government does have a spending problem. And I know there's a, a report, I don't know if it's a congressional report, but it's a report that shows just the ridiculous things that the government spends its money on. It's sort of a book on, we spent, you know, $100 million on this statue or in this district. And it really documents that. And there's no denying the fact that wasteful spending is real. But what I struggle with is this idea that this administration is going to cut taxes lower federal revenue by 3 to $7 trillion over the next decade. But on the same breath, they're entertaining the possibility of rolling out an infrastructure plan that's going to cost $1 trillion. I just don't know how you have it both ways, how you cut spending, but then promote programs that will actually increase spending. And for those fiscally conservative Republicans, what's interesting is this idea that you're cutting taxes, which will only add to the deficit and the debt, which goes against the principles of fiscal conservatism, which requires you to balance the budget and to ensure that you can pay for every proposal that you, you put forth. But in, in the example I just provided, you have Trump who's, again, cutting taxes, but then asking for an additional trillion dollars to fund the infrastructure. So it just seems a little backwards to me that on the one hand, you're cutting spending, while on the other hand, 
you're trying to spend a trillion more on programs that you think are essential. So that's something to definitely be on the lookout for, this tax plan and how it impacts individuals. But when talking about this trillion-dollar infrastructure plan, this is also something that's going to be on the horizon for the Trump administration. And Tyler Durden, he wrote a piece in Zero Hedge, which is an economic blog or newsletter that provides information on some of the economic issues of the day. And so Tyler Durden, he writes an article on the 11 deeply alarming facts about America's crumbling infrastructure. And he basically is highlighting why this trillion-dollar infrastructure plan is even being considered and why it may be desperately needed in many towns and communities and states across the country. And he shares 11 facts that are disturbing and alarming as he puts them about our infrastructure. I only want to share a couple of them with you because I think they're interesting. There are nearly 56,000 bridges in the United States that are currently structurally deficient. 185 million times a day, these vehicles are crossing these structurally deficient bridges. More than one out of every four bridges in the U.S. is more than 50 years old and has never had major reconstruction work. He knows that America does not have a single airport that is considered in the top 25 in the world. The American Society of Civil Engineers said that the condition of America's infrastructure on a whole only gets a D-plus grade. Congestion on our highways costs Americans approximately $101 billion a year in wasted fuel and time. According to the U.S. Department of Transportation, over two-thirds of our roads are in dire need of repair or upgrades. And in order to completely fix all of our roads and bridges, it would take approximately... $808 billion. Federal spending on infrastructure has increased by 9% over the past decade. And according to Bloomberg, it's projected that by 2025, shortfalls in the infrastructure investment will subtract as much as $3.9 trillion from our U.S. gross domestic product. So the biggest takeaway is that our bridges are structurally deficient, our roads are in dire need of repair, and the cost, whether in fuel or time or our gross domestic product, that the cost is actually in the trillions of dollars. And so this is why this is on the radar of the Trump administration, why it was on the radar of President Obama during his term. It was actually the Republicans who vehemently opposed an infrastructure bill out of fear of excessive spending. Uh, but now, you know, given that Trump's in office, it may have a chance of being passed. But, you know, with healthcare as our guide, you never know. So something to look out for to see where we net out with an infrastructure bill, because it's clear we desperately need to start repairing our roads, bridges and airports, not only because of the economic cost of trillions of dollars, as estimated, that's being lost, but also in terms of safety, you know, where you have airports not being up to standards, where you have bridges where people are crossing, you know, 185 million times a day that, that are not up to par. These are very real concerns that we have to address. And then lastly, when looking at the future of this Trump administration, he's already nominated and confirmed Neil Gorsuch, but there are some older Supreme Court justices, particularly liberal-leaning justices, who are getting older and who may be looking to retire in the next few years. And so that's why the 2018 midterm elections are so important. In my uh, episode on getting closer, I talked about how Donald Trump put forth Neil Gorsuch and how Senate Republicans changed the rules to say that we have to we can lower the threshold of votes needed to vote on the Supreme Court uh, nomination that allowed for Neil Gorsuch to easily get confirmed to the Supreme Court. Uh, but as I mentioned in that previous episode, you're now in a position where any future Supreme Court nominee put forth by the Trump administration can be put forth with the understanding that you no longer need 60 votes, you no longer need bipartisan support, and so you may get an even more conservative, even more right-wing justice being nominated to the Supreme Court in the next year or so 
if any of those justices happen to retire or, uh, God forbid, die while in office or in their post. And so why this 2018 election is so significant is because if the Democrats are able to regain seats, if they're able to take back control of the Senate, this will create a dynamic where any future nominee to the Supreme Court will now have to get buy-in from the Democratic Party, which means they'll likely have to be more centrist, which means that they'll have more of an opportunity for the Democrats to have a say in the nominating process of the Supreme Court justice. Because as we sit now, Trump can put forth any nominee uh, as right-wing as possible and not need any Democratic support to push it through. And so that's why the 2018 election is going to be so significant. And so in sum, it's important when thinking about the next 1,360 days to look at revisiting talks of Obamacare, repealing and replacing that, of tax reform, of infrastructure, and of the balance of the Supreme Court. And then lastly, as we think about the remaining term of the Trump administration very early into into this term, but as we begin to think about how we navigate this, um, I, I really loved the quote by Hassan Minaj. He is a senior correspondent on The Daily Show, and he also hosted the White House Correspondents' Dinner yesterday in D.C. And this is a big deal because the president always goes to these events. I think it was the first time since 1981 uh, that a president had not attended the White House Correspondents' Dinner. And as I mentioned before, with Reagan, it was actually because he had been shot in his first 100 days that he could not attend the dinner. And so since 1981, you know, presidents have notoriously and routinely attended this event. Trump did not, but it still went on as planned. And it was a way to honor and celebrate the press for the work they do and to raise funds and awareness for issues relating to journalism and, and scholarships for the, the community of aspiring journalists more broadly. But he notes in his roasting of the media and the president, uh, he notes, only in America can a Muslim get on this stage and make fun of the president. And I love that line, and people are praising it because it really speaks to our First Amendment rights to free speech. But I'm also aware of the fact that millions of Americans are living in fear, that you have hate crimes being committed, derogatory terms being thrown around. And even after the election, I'll never forget seeing videos of high schoolers chanting, you know, build the wall, build the wall, alienating peers who may have very well been American citizens and demonizing and alienating them. But I'm inspired by people's engagement in the process and how people are becoming more and more informed and are standing up for what they believe in. And that's so important because we are so, so divided uh, in this day and age and there's so much work that still needs to be done. It's only been around 100 days and I hope that people are not becoming demoralized, complacent, or left feeling hopeless with the current state of our political affairs. We have some big battles emerging over the next 1,360 days, and a big one being that, that midterm election coming up in 2018, and these many fights coming up around tax reform and infrastructure and even health care. And I'm reminded of Hillary Clinton's scripture uh, that she quoted in her concession speech in November, Galatians 6, 9, and let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Let's continue the good fight. Let's continue fighting for the oft-forgotten and oft-ignored. Let's continue fighting for our planet, for our global citizens, and for our own neighbors in Flint and Appalachia who will directly incur the cost of a complacent American people who allow for the continued disregard or lack of concern for the plight of the poor, for the plight of the most vulnerable. Let us fight for in doing the right thing and in not growing weary. There's no telling what we can accomplish in the next 100 days and in the remaining 1,360 days of the Trump presidency. Thank you so much for tuning in to the 15th official episode of The Riley Rant. Hope that you learned more about 
what has happened in these last 100 days and what you can expect to occur in the remaining 1,360 days. Please share your perspectives and feedback on how you think about and assess Trump on how he's been president thus far and what you're most anxious or nervous or even excited to see take place in the coming months and weeks. As always, remember, if it's Sunday, it's time to rant. If it's Sunday, it's the Riley rant.